If you enjoy our podcast, please consider supporting Glass Tire. All of the money we raise, since we are a nonprofit, goes right back into our coverage of Texas's art and artists. Our coverage is supported thanks to readers and listeners like you. If you would like to contribute, you can do so at glasstire.com forward slash donate. Thanks so much and enjoy today's show. Hello and welcome to Art Dirt. This is the Glass Tire podcast where we talk about topical art topics. I'm William Saradet. And I'm Nick Barbie. And today we are here to talk about uh, Galveston in general. I always love visiting Galveston. Um, but more specifically, Nick Barbie's project, uh, the Lending Library. When I came to Galveston in October of last year to visit the GAR residence, um, GAR stands for the Galveston Artist Residency, which to my belief, is, Nick is a former resident. Yes. And um, so I came to visit the GAR residence and get a taste of Galveston and see uh, the really unique uh, visual art scene that exists here at this specific point on the coast. And in doing so, I got to visit Nick's studio um, and see some work and hear about kind of how you got to Galveston and what you've been doing here all these years. And just like as a aside or a part of the studio visit, you showed me um, kind of the rear cubicle of your studio, which featured some artwork on the walls. And you were talking to me about a project that you had been working on called the Art Lending Library. Um, so we'll definitely get into that. But initially, I just want to give the audience a moment to hear your story, uh, kind of how you got to Galveston and why you stayed. I came to Galveston for GAR in 2011. I had just completed the core residency, the core program, um, and GAR was just starting up. So I was one of the first um, full year residents. You were one of the first cohorts. Yes, they had done a trial program with a phenomenal artist who stayed for three months. Um, and then they brought in three of us. So when we got here, it actually, the facilities weren't finished being built. Um, and it was brand spanking new. And you mentioned the core program. That's a, that's a program of the Glassell School of Art. Is that correct? Yeah, it's at the Glassell School, uh, which is part of the Museum of Fine Arts. And it's a one or two year program um, for visual artists and critics and writers and curators. And uh, it was a very, it's a very uh, intense and intensive program. Um, and even though it's just right up the road, uh, it's very different from the Galveston Artist Residency. So two very different programs. Um, and I had gone to the core program immediately after grad school. So I had got my MFA in painting from Tyler up in Philly. Um, and prior to that, I was in uh, New York. I went to Pratt to get my undergrad and my BFA in painting as well. Um, so coming to Texas, it was a brand new, uh, brand new experience for me. I had never come down here, spent most of my life on the East Coast. Awesome. So you're um, one of those people that was not born on the island, but you got here as soon as you could. <laughs> I, got, I got here and I found a very strange place that was very different from 
other areas or other cities in Texas I'd been to. Uh, it was, you know, it's funny how much it's changed even in the 10 years I've been here. I feel like it's gotten a little, a little bit more populated, a little bit more um, streamlined. But yeah, it, it does feel like sometimes it's, it's a little bit of the Wild West or you just don't quite know what's going to happen. I agree. I think it's, uh, you know, there's many extremely unique parts of Texas and this is definitely one of them. Um, and I think that you may have uncovered more and more layers of that in your current occupation, doing what you do. Would you explain that a little bit for us? Sure. So uh, immediately after GAR, I was I, had, I was still teaching in Houston, um, and that commute just got kind of crazy. The longer you stay on the island without going over the causeway, uh, the different, you, you know, you just you're more and more relaxed and you move at a different sort of pace. So, you know, when I was leaving two or three days a week, it definitely uh, shifted how I was, you know, interacting and living on the island. So it was, I was looking for a way to um, stay here full time. And uh, eventually that led me to working with the Galveston Historical Foundation um, in our preservation department. We're a large preservation organization uh, focused on architectural and maritime and cultural history of Galveston. Um, so it is really interesting to be able to go through different buildings in the island, uh, learn about the preservation um, ethos of the island as well, which is, again, very different from Houston. I mean, even in Dallas, one of the biggest cities in the nation, um, it feels like the effort that maybe could be put into preserving history there is just not really allocated in the way that it could be. Um, by comparison, Galveston being relatively small, um, it has just an incredible assortment of architectural styles and histories uh, that both outpace many Texas cities in diversity and age. Yeah, I mean, it's... Um... It's, it's one of the, the dangers of living in Galveston is, you know, we, we get hit by hurricanes and storms. and But it did a funny little thing for preservation in that it, you know, everybody left. And the city never re really rebuilt in the way that other larger cities um, do. So when the big push to revitalize downtown and to preserve the historic buildings... Uh, when that was really getting going in the 60s and 70s, um, what we found was a almost a blank slate. There was a lot less to undo. A lot, a lot of buildings hadn't been torn down. They had just been neglected. So it, um, you know, it benefited. The historic preservation benefited from kind of a 60 years of neglect. And that's just kind of an interesting dynamic um, as we see more and more cities in Texas become desirable to developers. So coming to Galveston every time is both a blast from the past and also a glimpse into a parallel timeline is yes. kind of how I see it. Um, it really does strangely feel like even though the history kind of of this place was sort of like stopped in 1900, um, it's not entirely gone and you can still kind of access it. Um, so anyway, it, Galveston is such a fascinating place. And it's always the people that are here often have 
uh, just interesting sensibilities or stories about how they got here um, if they weren't born here to begin with. Yeah, you know, it's Galveston's off the map. It's, you know, mile zero. Um, and it's literally across the water. We're a mile off the coast. And it feels different from, you know, even the closest cities. Uh, you know, and one of the things that sparked this revitalization um, of Galveston, you know, along with um, efforts by the city and private foundations, uh, one of the things that really sparked it was the publication of the book, The Galveston That Was, and it was photographs by uh, Cartier-Bresson and text by the architect Howard um, Barnstone. And, uh, you know, they, they walked through the city and they were photographing this just kind of derelict... Um, grand architecture and in the forward to that book they mention how Galveston feels like um, uh, the character from Great Expectations uh, Miss Havisham where it's like time has stopped and it's just kind of alive and dead at the same time and I always felt like that's a really good comparison um, of course that's not where it is now I think you know we the city's done a lot of work to you know make it more inviting for people to come down uh make it a much more livable city and i mean it's a fight that still continues but i have honestly been waiting all these months since we had that studio visit to dig into the topic of the art lending library that you kind of pioneered designed uh and executed um and so i just wanted to have an opportunity to do that now yeah you know, the Lending Library has um, taken a few different forms. Uh, I started it up with a grant from the idea, an idea fund grant, which is administered by um, Diverse Works and Project Row um, and Aurora Picture Show, uh, and it's uh, re-granting from Andy War uh, from the Andy Warhol Foundation. And I used, utilized a small grant from them uh, to start the library. Um, my big interest in it was, you know, as I said, I, I grew up on the East Coast. I grew up in D.C. I lived in New York and in Philly. And, you know, as a teenager, I was able to hop on my bike or get on the metro and go downtown to the Smithsonian where it was free. You know, I had the access to the Hirshhorn National Gallery of Art. Um, I could pay to get into like the Phillips collection. You know, I had access to this stuff and it taught me about making art and looking at art. And I worked on a piece after I was at GAR called Ask Forgiveness, where I made, made a list of all the artwork I'd ever seen that influenced me, made me feel like uh, I was validated as, as an artist. These were things that I have a sense of ownership over, even though I don't, didn't make them, I didn't buy them. They're just artworks that I've had a relationship with and you know made me feel like I said like yes like I can do this too and as I was look and then I, I from that list I made a little maquette where I tried to recreate all the pieces from memory but also all the galleries I saw them in um, and it's fun whenever I show it I get to um, remake some of those pieces uh, so it's always a fun experience and it's different each time I do it uh, each time I exhibit it. Um, but what I realized was I was so lucky and I benefited from having access to those museums. And I said, how do you 
you know, so I started going through in my head, how do you translate that sense of ownership to somebody who doesn't have the same access, right? I think the thing that we always hear uh, from people outside of the arts is, you know, some version of, I thought all artists were dead people. You know, I didn't realize people were living and making artwork or that it was accessible and something I could do or even the benefit of living with it. So what I wanted to do was to create a space where people that didn't have access to contemporary art could live with it uh, and learn about it at either a very low cost or a, a most free. Um, so I started that in 2016 and put it on hiatus uh, in 2020, um, but have recently started it back up uh, working with the school district here. So we're doing a pilot program with one elementary school and we're hanging work up in the hallways um, and then we engage with the students. So they get to live with the artwork for a little bit and then they get to ask questions of the artist and get to engage with them. So I think part of what enamored me so much about this project and this idea was that it seemed like it solved some problems to the obstacles of collecting. And by that, I, I don't just mean that um, people can lend works for free as a, like in a library kind of yeah. an approach. But beyond that, it seemed like you had really efficaciously used um, I want to say public funds, but maybe even crowd funds uh, to to acquire work and get artists paid, and then the work doesn't have to um, sit in storage forever. Am I am I uh, walk me through that a little bit, or expand upon that if you have any thoughts? Sure. So you know the the grant that I started with was um, it was sizable, but it you know it's not a huge grant. So I did have to budget and really try and plan out how to create a collection, which also is something I had never done before. Um, so what I wanted to do was first make sure that I was representing a broad uh, spectrum of contemporary practices, because I think that's the thing that people get a little afraid of or fearful of or it is intimidating. I think the thing people are intimidated by is contemporary art can feel very heady or it can feel very uh, confrontational. So I think what I wanted to represent was that contemporary artwork can be funny. It can be political. It can be sexual. It can be um, beautiful. You know, it can be uh, complicated or it could be simple. You know, it, it's so broad um, that I think there is a space for people in there to find their home and or find what they like. So I had an idea of what I wanted to try and find. And then I also was able to um, utilize connections I had made at Houston and in Galveston to purchase those works um, somewhat at a discount. But it also was, you know, they're smaller works. They're things that would go into people's homes. So I was able to purchase them. I also really did try and focus on recent graduates or younger artists, emerging, underrepresented, whatever you want to say. Um, 
because I thought not only did it give somebody a paycheck, but then they could put on their CV that they're part of a permanent collection, you know? And I thought that was, you know, I remember starting out and being so happy to have something to put on my CV. When I was preparing for this discussion, one thing that came to mind, one question was, um, so you're building an accessible collection for your local community, and you're also sourcing local works, works by local artists. Um, so that there's a lot of uh, community involved in that model. But something I, I couldn't remember or I was just very curious about mm -hmm. was, um, does the community's input into what is acquired for the collection factor at all? Or is that, or does it not function that way yet and you've like considered it? What do you, what do you think about that? Yeah, so you know, one thing was finding out what people actually were borrowing. Um, and after the first two lending events, because it would, everybody would borrow the work on the same night and it was, you know, they had it for three months and then it was due back. Um, that way it would just be more consistent um, and on a regular time schedule. And I would always see the same pieces going out the door the first, you know, they were always the first piece to go out. And so I started thinking, all right, I could tailor my collection towards what I see as most popular. But one of the other things that I did really appreciate and I thought was, I counted as a success was when somebody, you know, wouldn't get their first choice and they would say, well, I'll just take this one, even though it's not what they wanted. And then to hear back from him in two months, be like, I'm really glad I took that because after, you know, a month, all of a sudden I started having a different relationship with it. So it is a little bit of a, my prerogative to choose, <laughs> but I definitely am responding to what people are choosing to take. Um, and now that it's, you know, I've gone into schools with it, it is working within curriculums as well. It changes the nature of the works that I'm picking. Yeah, that makes sense. Um, something that I found to be really elegant about this program or this model was that it seemed like it could scale or fit a lot of different um, social needs, public art needs. As you're saying, you're kind of refitting it to work within a public independent school district, uh, if I'm understanding correctly. And so I can, I can totally imagine that the ISD has some stipulations, you know, um, as, as any, you know, parent agency would. So it's cool that you at least had the affordance to do it under like your own purview at first just to get a feel for like how the public responded to it without like too much pressure and now maybe you're able to take it to other places or even like train other people how to think in this way how to create a public collection that uh circulates funds equitably throughout the community yeah you know it's like one of the pieces i have that i one of the first pieces i got was a um it was by Tommy Gregory, who used to live here in Texas, and now he's um, doing great work in Seattle with their public art collections. Uh, but it was these cast bronze condoms and, you know, in a wrapper. And that's not something that I'm going to put up in an elementary school. Um, that just, you know, that would go against the, the partnership I've developed. So... Um, 
you know, being conscious of those sorts of things, but being conscious of the audience. Um, but yeah, I think one of the my most exciting things to happen with this library has been um, I got to develop a second library with Lawndale um, in Houston. So Lawndale has a lending library as well. And I worked very closely with them for the first year and then was able to um, hand it off to them and see how they developed it and grew it. So it was at one point something that was a little bit more under my control. And now I've gotten to see how it um, grows and develops on its own um, under Emily Fenns has really taken the reins of it at Lawndale and Anna Walker now who's there has been great with it. But um, it's been very nice to see how it would exist with a different population. So it sounds like even in the first few years of trying out this program, it maybe you've learned a lot of lessons or you've come across feedback from different kinds of groups that are interacting with this, either it's artists or the public or now like a, a school system. And I'm just wondering, um, uh, you know, just for good old devil's advocate and also for listenership, um, for what the listeners might want to know, what have been kind of the obstacles? Was there anything that you hit your head against that you didn't suspect or felt kind of like a bigger problem that you, you didn't anticipate initially? I think the biggest thing I ran up against was I had identified my ideal audience at the beginning of the project and it uh, turned out to be a completely different audience. And so it changed, um, it cha you know, I had to change course in the middle of, of starting it up. Um, what I had really been hope hoping for was um, maybe engaging younger, a younger audience, maybe a less educated audience, art, uh, an audience that had less arts education. And what I found was it was a lot of um, people that already had a relationship to collecting and living with art. So that was one of the reasons I wanted to backtrack and find a way to meet the community where they were, as opposed to um, just expecting them to find me. You know? uh, I can be pretty hard-headed when I have an idea. Um, and, and so it did force me to be a little bit more uh, accommodating and flexible. I think that can be, um, well, maybe I'll speak from experience. It, it's, it's kind of a classic creative issue where you, you have like the idea, you're, you have a destination that you are so excited to get to and you kind of, you start to build the thing and you realize that the destination is maybe not exactly where you're going to land, at least the first time. Um, so, I mean, I commend you on being able to roll with those punches. Uh, and I guess I also kind of want to know, um, we're not in your studio currently, mm -hmm. uh, but when I visited last time and you, and you took me to, it's kind of like your office space, um, I saw like the small works on the wall and they were in varying mediums, very different approaches, uh, aesthetically, visually, but they were all like, they would sit very well on a shelf or just on a wall cause they weren't very big. And, um, you know, the dimension and format of art is sometimes its own obstacle to shipping yeah. or installation or owning, um, 
So I guess maybe I wonder, how did you navigate that conversation with artists or where you were sourcing the art from? Both, both these were kind of lessons I learned from my own studio practice was typically in, a, in my studio, I can figure it out as I'm going. And that was something I had to learn to you know, plan a little bit more ahead. Um, <laughs> for the first uh, few years that I was in Texas, you know, the thing, the thing that I've learned about Texas is that it's, um, if you think about it city by city, it feels very isolated and small. But when you start thinking about Texas as its own thing, you re- as its own scene, um, you realize it's huge and diverse and really exciting, you know. Um, so as I was exhibiting in small shows, whether it was in Dallas or in Fort Worth or Austin or even in Houston, I had to make sure that those shows could fit in my small sedan. (laughs) So everything I made, even if it was big, grand work, would be able to fit into the back of a four-door Geo Prism. And so it was something that I learned how to do and kind of translated to the other artists that I was working with. you know, typically we weren't looking for, I wasn't always looking at their best work, their biggest work, the things that they really wanted to continue with. It might have been older work. It could have been smaller sketches. It could have been um, more incidental work. Um, so, you know, I definitely found that scale. Uh, and also because I was working with, like I said previously, I was really talking to a lot of younger artists and um I was able to communicate that to them and work within a budget and also maybe provide value to something they didn't quite realize, you know, had, had a real value that these small little incidental things were maybe not an equal value or maybe not the same type of value as their larger work that they'd been working on. But there's something there, something that was, you know, you, you don't want to pass up on or forget about. One of the downsides to growing up and going through to museums to learn about artwork or say uh, large galleries was I was learning about institutional scaled work and there's something about that that kind of sat in my head as the ideal as opposed to learning about it through domestic scale and that's what I really wanted to target there's value to living with artwork and to seeing it every day and developing that relationship and that happens in your home. It happens in your office. Um, if you're lucky enough to live in a town with good public art, it might happen that way. But so yeah, I really targeted that small domestic scale. Something that um, I can't ignore working with Glass Tire is the, as you kind of alluded, the the size of Texas, the the massive hugeness of it all, and um, how there are literally you know thousands of communities all over the place. And it's kind of, and while we do have, you know, impressive institutions that are kind of pushing and innovating um, how to serve the public with art exhibitions, the galleries as well, the galleries do so, so, so much work in this state um, in the way that they exhibit. But that's really only a few blocks in a few cities and the state will, always be bigger than you know 
a few museums. And I think that's why I really appreciate this project because there's no gate to institutional collecting in this model. Um, it's just local artists and local people being able to trade uh, attention and aesthetics between the two of them. And Galveston, weirdly, is, is like a perfect little uh, microcosm to try that out in. I think the people here are receptive to it. I think they appreciate it. Um, there are art centers here, there are art organizations, so I can't say that this is, you know, like a museum desert or anything, but it's not Houston, you know, and it's right next to Houston, so it's constantly uh, in contrast and with, you know, one of the biggest cities in the country. As artists, we could do a better job of recognizing, um, recognize a few things that we take for granted relative to the broader community. And one of those is like the economy of work swaps. Like, you know, how much of the artwork in my house that I live with, how much of that have I gotten, have I acquired through trades or through studio sales or simply through knowing um, what other people are up to and being able to grab it. Um, and that's, it's that sort of economy that, you know, we all have, and I think, you know, we all utilize and we all operate within in a certain way, but that doesn't translate to, um, that doesn't translate to the broader community. Um, I taught, um, undergraduate and graduate students, and I remember this from my own time in school how frustrating it was to never learn how to price my own work. Uh, I understand why so many programs shy away from that, and it's probably a good thing, but it does do us a little bit of a disservice where we don't know how to go out and value our own work. Somebody operating as a middleman and not in a typically commercial way, somebody who can come in and say, this is a value of this work, this is a real market value um, and then also operating as a go-between for potential collectors or people that want to become collectors and artists to operate in that way uh, it's a space that we don't it's a space that's typically occupied by say a, a gallerist or um, sometimes a nonprofit, but mostly a gallerist and that's not something that everybody has immediate access to that's one of the, in my mind, one of the big gaps in um, accessibility in art is that galleries are free. They don't require tickets to get in, but people will not seek them out. They don't think of them as places where you can access local culture or uh, get educated on contemporary aesthetics or the value of this market in general. And I think that this local lending library actually does that. It's kind of a, it's almost like a sorcerer's stone kind of a, a strategy. It, it fills in the final gap of like, you can tell people um, if you want something on your wall, you can come to this library, come, you know, join us for the meet and we'll swap and we'll all get a sense of um, 
both what's being created in this community and what is the literal value of it. And there's not a lot of buy-in required, but people, for the most part, everyone benefits, everyone involved. Um, I just think that in art, especially at the sort of, maybe at the institutional levels that we were discussing earlier, where values are so extreme and items are so precious, uh, it creates a distance between the public and the value of the work. And this really closes that gap, at least in my mind. Yeah, I don't know who would agree with this or not, and you might disagree, but I do think that so often artwork is too expensive. Not everything needs to be um, priced so high. <laughs> Certain things within your practice, and I'm not saying that just because you're young and starting out, you should be giving it away for free. It's that there are parts of your practice that can be saleable and attainable and parts that might be more geared towards an institutional setting or a different collector base. But there's no reason to not include the person who wants to buy in at 150 bucks, $500. One of the things that kept coming, that I kept noticing was there would be people who would come in, borrow artwork, express how much they loved it, but then also claim that they couldn't afford it, even though they were going out and spending, you know, $400 at the bar in a restaurant that weekend. You can buy two really nice small drawings for that and live with them forever. And I think that that's, that's the sort of uh, takeaway I want people to have. You know, so often when artists are talking to other artists, we talk about very big ideas. We use very large language sometimes, um, which is good because it drives and creates artwork. But it does isolate us a little bit. So finding a way to break down that barrier, it's really been a big one for me. One of my favorite words is uh, sesquipedalian, which means one and a half feet, means using unnecessarily large words. But I feel like that, you know, so often, artists are unable to talk about their own practices. It's so much easier to tell somebody else about somebody else's. So um, I didn't see this as a transition into becoming like a dealer or any other sort of facilitator, but simply as a service to my communities, to communities that I exist in. And with that, uh, that is going to do it for our discussion this week. Thank you, Nick Barbie, for taking the time to discuss such a fascinating, interesting project on the Texas Gulf Coast. Oh, thank you. Thank you. And. We will be back with another episode of Art Dirt in two weeks. In the meantime, be sure to check our events calendar to peruse exhibitions happening across the state of Texas and go see some art. Go see some art. podcast was recorded by Glass Tire and edited by William Saradet. Copyright Glass Tire 2023.